0: Okay, so you can accept the recording. As always, i like to mention that uh, you will not be recorded, um, which, uh, unless, of course, you talk, but then again, they won't see you. They will just hear you, and uh, that's all fine. Um, I'd like to thank all of our uh, sponsors for the course, those who have sponsored a class. We'd like to thank the Van Camp family who sponsored in loving memory of Bobby Chaya. We'd like to thank uh the davis family we'd like to thank uh mr don hirschman and we'd like to thank the hater family and the uh pasco family so thank you to everybody um who sponsored um the different classes of this course appreciate it very much and it's been a lot of fun and uh, we'll look forward to another fun class today now what's especially fun today is we're going to start without a joke we're just going to go straight in. We're going to dive in and uh, you'll get no, but don't worry. The rabbit will not spare you. You will get a joke later. So it'll all be good. Um, Jesse, is your food burning over there? Just want to make sure it's all okay. No, it's good. Yeah. Everything's working good. Okay, good. All right. All right. That uh, men are not very good at multitasking. You know, uh, they, they sometimes say men are like waffles anyways, we, everything's segmented in different sections. So tonight we're going to discuss the question of responsibility. If you have a student book, you'll find it on page 76. And this chapter examines the meaning and the extent of mutual responsibility. It's natural that uh, we feel a certain sense of responsibility towards each other, but are we actually responsible? In other words, can we be held responsible in a court of law and as you can imagine, Judaism will take a hard line on this because, as we've discussed, it's not about my rights; it's about doing what's right. However, we will learn to what extent does Jewish law differ from secular law, and uh, how far does Judaism take it? Our responsibility towards others, and we're going to start with a couple case studies. And the first case study is actually very much um, timely. What I mean by that is um, um, we all know, unfortunately, the school shooting that happened in uh, Texas. And uh, one of the things that, have, that has come out since is that, you know, always everybody says, oh, he was the kindest, most gentle soul. Uh, but actually, online, he was a pretty nasty person and he would threaten people. And uh, sometimes he was reported and nothing was done about it. Uh, But many times he wasn't reported. Would there be a moral obligation to report somebody who's making threatening statements online? Let's take a look at an actual case study. For those who remember, in 2017, there was a a mass shooting in an Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal church by a person called Dylan Roof. We're going to read the story of Dylan Roof's friend, who knew about it and what the law said about that. So let's take a look over here. If you have student page 76, if not, I'm going to share it on the screen. So let's take a look, it's actually page, yeah, okay. So the story goes like this, Joseph C. Meek Jr., a friend of Dylan Roof's who spent time with him in the weeks before the nine people were killed at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church here was sentenced Tuesday to 27 months in prison for hampering and misleading the federal authorities in the aftermath of Mr. Roof's racist massacre. So again, why was he put in prison? For misleading federal authorities. That will be an important point, let's continue. Mr. Meek, 22, pleaded guilty last April to two federal counts related to the truthfulness of his responses to the FBI in interviews shortly after the shooting of June 17, 2015. So again, his issue was that he lied to the FBI after the shooting misprison of a felony and making a false statement to law to a law enforcement officer. Miss Prison refers to failure to report a known crime. Um, the government, so here's the clarification. What does it mean miss prison? The government did not prosecute Mr. Meek for failing to disclose knowledge of Mr. Roof's plans to attack the church, although it asserted in court filings that a silence did, deprive law enforcement of the opportunity to intervene during a night of drinking and drug use about a week before the shooting mr roof told mr meek that he wanted to kill black people at a historic african methodist episcopal church in charleston in order to start a race ride according to the fbi summaries of interviews with him mr meek was concerned enough to hide mr roof's handgun after he fell asleep but he later returned it and did not report the threat to law enforcement certainly defendants failure to make an earlier report is tragic and deeply regrettable This is the important line, but his failure to report was not a violation of federal criminal law. Judge Gergel wrote last week in an order that denied prosecutors request to give Mr. Meek a longer term than recommended in sentencing guidelines. So again, prosecutors wanted to say he should be in prison longer because because of what he's done, because not reporting the crime before it happened. And that is not punishable in American law. In his initial FBI interviews, Mr. Meek denied having noted of Mr. Roof's plans and said Mr. Roof had not spoken of a target for his attack, according to Assistant United States Attorney Julius N. Richardson. But in a second interview, Mr. Meek admitted that he had lied. According to an FBI synopsis of the session, he also admitted that on the night of the shooting, after concluding that Mr. Roof was sp- responsible for the attack, he told others not to contact law enforcement. And so that was his two issues. A, was that Mr. Meek Um, first lied to the FBI, and number two, he obstructed justice by instructing others not to contact law enforcement. So what comes out from here, the fact that A, he did not report Mr. Roof before the shooting, and B, he himself did not call the FBI after the shooting, both of those were not a problem. His only problem was A, that he lied to the FBI in the beginning, and B, that he told others not to speak to law enforcement. So in your opinion, in your opinion, you can post this in the chat. So again, if you know of an eminent, someone tells you they are going to commit a crime, an attack on other people. Okay. Your friend comes over to you and says, I am going right now to the other store and I'm going to punch Mr. Whoever in the face. Would it be a, just commendable to tell the authorities? Would it be, be in addition to commendable morally imperative, or would it be C, also a legal obligation? How would you feel about it? A plus B, okay. Commendable morally imperative. You wouldn't feel it should be. Again, I told you what the law is. The law is it's not. Do you feel that it should be legislated? Um, So I think everybody would agree it would be commendable. Um, Hopefully, everybody would agree it would be morally imperative. I'm asking American law right now. Do you think it should be imperative in American law? Good question, though. You're asking, is that according to Jewish law? I'm telling you American law. American law says you do not have to report. um, So Someone says you believe it should be punishable because to fail to prevent it is if accepting and helping. Okay. Again, that is not the current law in America. There are a couple of countries that do have that, but not America and many other Western countries. Um, but I see here some people believe it should be a legal obligation. some people uh, not so much. Okay. What are the what would be the downside of making it a legal, legal obligation to report? Think about it. Um, why does the government not make it a uh, moral imperative? Let's say, there's only certain cases where it is morally, imp- where it is legally imperative. For example, if someone, if a child comes over to a teacher or a rabbi and says, um, and says uh, they were sexually abused, the rabbi, the teacher must report it. It's in the law. But if you're just a random Joe Schmo, you're just a random person, you don't have to report to law enforcement. Um, so it's, it's, Uh, uh Okay, someone says the Torah says you should not stand aside while your fellow's blood is shed. Yes, correct. So Torah law would probably say that. We'll discuss that later. The nuance in interpreting if a threat is real or posturing, perhaps. Yes, very good question. Um, (laughs) Just the other day, someone got very upset at me. What can I say? People sometimes can be people and then the people's business is like, you know, I should come to your synagogue and burn it down. Is that a threat? Is it posturing? Is it just... uh, He didn't say i will he said i should you know um is it a threat you know how do you look at that Uh, unintended consequence is offenders target you for revenge um if offenders target you for revenge yes um people can change their minds now you've reported them and they you know you've gone to the police you made a whole hullabaloo and they they changed their mind okay if you lie or mislead Accusing the falsehoods, i.e., Heyman owes me money, so I will say he is going to commit a crime to avoid that debt. That is a crime. Yep. So there's all, um, um Yeah, that it, it, it could create a very, very interesting society. Yes, Esmeralda.
1: I guess my question is like, if this were to be become a law in this country, how effective would it be to in preventing a crime like this, because if somebody doesn't have a moral imperative, like is a person going to actually go ahead and call, you know, report that a potential crime to the police?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. It, yeah, talking about if the country doesn't have a moral imperative, we're actually going to talk about it later. There's other examples, which is let's say not somebody telling you they're going to commit a crime. Let's say you've seen a crime, and that's another issue. We have a lot of cases a duty to rescue, so to speak, if you see something happening, do you have to intervene? Um, and um, there's actually, I want to get too far off, but there's actually, um, there was a story in China recently. There was a toddler that was run over by two cars, one car. And, and in the interim, 18 people walked by and nobody did anything. They saw the child all bloodied on the floor. Nobody, Nobody did anything and only the drivers are prosecuted. They didn't prosecute the, the, the passersby that walked by uh, because it's not in the law over there. But um, they, the government announced like this is a, an awakening, You know, where is people's moral compass? So that's a good point. There's both what's the law and where, where are people's moral compass? Uh, can we uh, really change people's moral compass by a law? It's a good question. So uh, everybody's bringing up a lot of interesting issues. Okay, we have some other things here. Slippery slope, people can get arrested prior to committing a crime, yes. Someone else, the law does not create a moral imperative. Torah does that, the legal imperative is, an issue, is the issue, i.e., I may not feel a moral imperative to pay taxes, but I must, good point. So um, yes, laws don't create moral imperative. Um but nevertheless, some law, right, laws cannot create a moral imperative, but they can create a law. And I guess our laws are typically based on morals. Although as we'll see, American law to an extent, but not, not fully, you know, these, these are all great points. How do people just walk by that and not help the child? How? Uh, there's something called the bystander effect. I think we've shown it before. There's, there's stories of people who are stabbed in the New York subway and nobody does anything called the bystander effect somebody else or i don't know i don't want to get involved somebody else is doing that uh we all do it to a small extent you drive by the, a car stuck on the side of the road okay there could be danger but let's say you're in your own neighborhood i don't know i'm in a rush uh well i need to go help i understand seeing a car is different than seeing a child okay yes the law provides for a conspiracy even if the crime has not been committed don't wait for the plane to hit the world trade center yeah Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, all very good, interesting points. And so, we can definitely see the downsides of making a law that legislates that you must report crimes. At the same time, we also see the downside of people not reporting crimes because hopefully these things could be prevented. And again, I gave an example of child abuse and child abuse. Again, not everybody is legally required to report, but uh, if you're in certain positions you're a rabbi you are a teacher you're a police officer even if you're off duty you are required to report it's a law and hopefully it prevents um others from being abused but again that is because of the position you're in it's not a law that they're putting on everybody a nurse must report yes and many many others okay let's take a look at a case study b this will take what we took a moment ago and and, and apply it to a lesser level. So again, case study A was, there's going to be a murder. You know about it. Do you have a moral or legal obligation to go tell anybody? Let's take a look at case study number B. And this is talking about where if you have the ability to save somebody money, um, do you have an obligation to contact them to help them save that money? So let's take a look. Rachel strolls along the street one evening, passing a store that is closed for the night, glancing through the window. And I'm going to change the story here because I don't like the case study for whatever reason. Uh, I prefer, let's say, you are walking by a store and you see the owner left his car there with the light on. Which means the battery is going to drain overnight, which is definitely a pain. Um, Another way of looking at it is, uh, let's say, you have a neighbor who's out of town and um you see now people have lights on in their house even when they're out of town or see, that's the reason i don't like this air conditioning example because people can leave on air conditionings for multiple reasons and i don't think if you see an air conditioning on in a business that you should assume oh you know they need to save the money i need to tell them the air conditioning is on uh maybe if there's some heavy machinery that you see going on but let's take it or another example let's say uh, your na- you have, uh, you're walking by uh, your neighbor, like I have a neighbor, they're out for, uh, they're out for uh, six months, a year, and uh, you notice some water leaking out of their front door, you're going to assume that there, there's a leak in their house, okay, but, but now I don't know my neighbor's number, well, I do, but let's say I did it, okay, do you have an obligation to contact your neighbor to let them know, hey, your house is leaking? Do you have an obligation to find out who owns that car to let them know, hey, the light, on, the light is on in your car? Um, in all these cases where you see someone is losing money and it's clear and obvious to you that they are losing money and they don't want to, um, another example people say is if you walk by a store that's closed and you notice the door is unlocked. It's a possible... Uh, opens them up for possible theft. Do you have to try and track down that store owner, let them know, hey, your door is unlocked and uh, someone might break it. So would you consider it just commendable, morally imperative, or or also a legal obligation to save somebody money? Again, before it was about murder, Now we're about money. So again, you notice, you know, it's a similar idea. You know, something is happening. Again, before is physical harm. Now it's monetary. You know, someone is going to be losing money. You, let's say, know pretty sure that they don't know about it. Do you have just a moral obligation or do you have a legal obligation to, um, let that owner know. Now, obviously, you probably will all say, uh, from American law, you would not have a legal obligation, would you? Believe that it should be a legal obligation? Just curious. Uh, would you believe Torah would make it a legal obligation? Um, I see here somebody wrote here, morally imperative. Yes, definitely morally imperative. Um, would everybody? Would everybody here agree it's morally imperative? Yes, it's morally imperative. You see somebody else losing something yes, you would you would agree it's morally imperative at the very least, even if not legally. Um, it was a security guard on his job, but the guard at the Watergate reported the open door history was changed. yes, help and aid and report um, mm-hmm. this is I think Watergate's before my time, so I I hate to say it, but i don't I don't recall those details. Um, although I know what well, I'm pretty sure I know what it is, but I, I don't I don't recall the details. Um, huh? Don, you want to speak up? Sure. Yeah. Okay. The
2: uh, the night watchman was making his rounds. Yeah. And he saw a door was open. Now, huh. yes, it was his job to report it, mm. and he did. It turned out that the burglars were in the Democratic National Headquarters putting bugs in, and this led to the change, uh, downfall of a president. The, right. the, the reason I bring that up is even though it was his job, it is important to, to if you see something, say something. I think there's, there is merit to that. If you are sincere and you are not trying to do this for personal gain, But this doesn't look kosher to me. I'm going to tell somebody else whose job it is to evaluate it. And I think that's the issue here. We must let someone know who who can then further evaluate it. Uh, A light on in the car, in a way, is an invitation to car burglary. Um, Not only will you be out of battery juice in the morning and you can't get to work, um,
0: there are many reasons to do this. It's the right thing. Right. So just to, just extrapolate, those are good examples. And I will extrapolate from that. Let's say you are in a kosher restaurant and you notice somebody bringing in one of the workers, bringing some non-kosher meats through the back door, or let's say you're in a restaurant and you notice one of the people there uh, doing something unsanitary. You know, I, I think, you know, then these, these, this brings up the question at some point, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, to, to an extent, I guess we could, we we could always take these things to extremes. Where there's a saying in the in the prophets, ain't sadik there is no righteous person who doesn't sin. Um, I guess everybody could probably report and everybody else if they're not filing their taxes correctly. I guess that would be the that would be the American law aversion to forcing people to report. Is we can it, we we could almost become like a Soviet society um That would be the aversion to, to forcing people to report, but at the same time, yes, I believe there's a moral imperative to report um, in most in most cases. Yeah, but that 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 I could see the the American aversion would be we'd become a, the society of, of snitchers.
2: I would like to try and, and 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 draw an allegory. Please tell me if it if it's anything reasonable. Okay, um, you don't put something in the way of a blind person so they stumble. Correct. If you bring in, I'm not talking about the kosher food, but an unsanitary situation, the customers in the restaurant would be equivalent of the blind people because they don't see what's going on. Mm. And you do something which puts them at risk. It it would be, to me, the same principle as putting something in the way of a blind man is putting people who are innocent at risk uh, by not, not saying something. Mm-hmm. and they right. get sick it's on you as much as the person who did it the right. person who did it may not even realize it's unsanitary but if you realize it you must go to the aid of the fellow people there
0: right but Somebody now, okay.
2: next to the next right. table might have a child who has right. various health problems and getting bad food would just put them over the
0: edge right so that, that would be a good question and i would say If let's say we were to make a law that you do have to report problems that you see, it might be that we would say in the law, you don't necessarily have to go to the cops first. You can first talk to the owner and only the owner doesn't fix it. Then you can go to the cops. Whatever, just just throwing out an idea. But let me move on to the third case study. And the third case study is a final extrapolation of all these ideas. And the third case study is we know that uh, you know, We've been discussing in all these cases where if there's a way that you can save somebody in any different way, um, you should jump in, whether it's health, whether it's money, whether it's a murder, God forbid. In all these cases, you should, you should jump in at least morally and do something about it. And based on this, what would we say us as believing Jews, which everybody in the class I assume over here is, to, an ex- to some extent or another involved Jews, today we see so many Jews that are falling off the bandwagon, so to speak. And then they have in the in the book, you know, some of the studies, how many, you know, w- w- what's going on. And so would you say, obviously not from American law, because, you know, being Jewish is not an American thing, but would you say, uh, at the very least from a Jewish perspective, that there would be some type of imperative upon us to reach out to our fellow Jews to make sure they don't uh, lose out, so to speak on something Jewish, of course you cannot force somebody to do anything, but at the very least try and reach out to them and offer them something and, and try and do your best to help them out. You know, the same way you reach out to somebody, their car light is on and they say, ah, well, I can't be bothered. I'm in my pajamas. I'm not going out. Right. Um, nothing you can do, but would you say, and I'd like to put this in the chat, would you say that the same thing would apply for Jews? What's going on today? The Jewish world do we have an imperative to try and reach out to our fellow Jews and try and help them live a little more Jewishly okay I got one report yes absolutely the Torah requires a person to confront a person doing something wrong however Allah states this obligation is only to close acquaintances or friends you are comfortable with. so you, uh, we will discuss that case a little later um, any others any, any, uh, any other thoughts Okay, so we have a couple of case studies. We've had a lot of uh, discussion, although um, still want to hear from Jesse. Okay, we've had a lot of uh, <laughs> discussion and, and thought over here. So let's take a look at uh, what Judaism has to say, and that's really how we've done these classes: present case studies. This has been the structure of every class: present case studies, get your mind thinking of the topic then break down the value system, secular law versus Jewish law, and then we can come to a conclusion. What would Jewish law say about all of these topics? Okay. So um, one clarification, because we're about to dive into the Jewish value system around this. We have to understand that Jewish law always speaks in a lexicon about Jewish people. Again, Jewish law will always speak in a lexicon about Jewish people. That is because it is law that is addressed to Jewish people, just as American law addresses only people who are in the country of America, Jewish law addresses people who are Jewish. So just so you know, when we read this and you'll see a lot of Jewish lexicon, that is why. Now, does that mean that those laws apply to the world at large? There's debates amongst the commentaries, whether they do or they don't, definitely the ideas and the concepts do even if the actual law doesn't apply to everybody, my dissenting opinion, okay. So let's take a look at um, text number one. Text number one is actually connected to a holiday that we are about to celebrate. And that is the holiday of Shavuot. So the holiday of Shavuot is uh, a wonderful holiday and right before that holiday uh god came to jewish people and he asked them do you want to accept my torah and the jewish people answered text number one with a resounding we will do everything that god has said so the jewish people agreed and they said yes god we will do everything that you have said may, people may have heard not nah, seven ishma we will do and we will hear but the commentaries point out that the verse says the nation answered at, in unison which is odd because Jews are not usually in unison but be that as it may the nation answered in unison we will do everything that God has said and the midrash sees an important message in the fact that they answered together and the midrash sees it that when the Jewish people answered God they were not only making a pact between themselves and God to do everything that God has told them but they also made a pact between themselves. What does it mean? Let's take a look. The Medrash says, when the Jewish people accepted God's rule at Mount Sinai, they did so joyfully as one, as the verse states, the people all responded in unison. In doing so, they even committed to serving as guarantors for each other. So again, the Medrash is saying, the fact that they answered together, means they are agreeing, not only that I am going to do what God is asking me, but I'm going to make sure that we all will do what God is asking of us. That's what it means to be a guarantor. We tend to think of the giving of the Torah as a pact between God and mankind, between the Jewish people. But what's fascinating is again, it was, they did not only assume responsibility for their own personal observance, they accept the responsibility for each other and this responsibility encompasses the entire torah we have we each have a responsibility to do our best to protect any fellow jew from any transgression of any of the torah's negative commandments someone quoted earlier the verse that says don't place a stumbling block before a blind person and so what that means is 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 uh, that includes even in uh, jewish law but not only do we have to make sure they don't, or try to prevent them from doing any transgression, we also are committed to helping them do positive commandments. So practically, what does this mean? Um, this means if there's, if I have any ability, uh, I'll give an example. I have all the time. Uh, you know, I have, a, have, I have, I know people who are Jewish who don't necessarily keep all the commandments, and many times I'll tell them, you know, let's say I, I can't turn on this light on Shabbos. So the Jew will tell me, okay, don't worry, Rabbi, I'll do it. Right? No, I say, no, 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 no. You're Jewish. You're not going to turn the light for me. Ideally, I wouldn't want you to turn the light for yourself either. But I have an obligation. If I can stop you from doing a transgression, I would have to do that. Now I can't, you know, I can I can try and help you and convince you your own personal life, but at the very least, I can stop people from doing something for me. Right. At the same time. Uh, we also have an obligation to try and get them to do every positive commandment. Now, what is the basis? What, why, again, that's the technical. Technically, we saw the Jewish people accepted to guarantee each other's observance. But what's the idea behind it? In other words, what's the theory behind, the philosophy behind it? So again, I'm just going to recap. What we said now is that the Jewish people now Sinai accepted upon themselves not only that each individual should keep the Torah, but they each accepted collective responsibility. You can imagine... It's almost like there was a loan <laughs> taken out by the whole family you know the whole jewish family so we've all accepted upon ourselves a responsibility <laughs> We we'll tell the story of uh, jack he was interviewing for a job and uh the interviewer says you know we need somebody who's very responsible do you think uh, you're the man for the job and so jack says i am the person that you want In my last job whenever something went wrong, everybody said, Jack, he's responsible. Okay. All right. That's the joke. Uh, that's the joke for the day. So you have your, your bad joke. So what's the philosophy behind this idea that we are responsible for each other. So the Medrash gives a beautiful explanation of a boat. Let's take a look at the text of the Medrash. This is text number three. So the Medrash says like this, when the Jewish people accept, Oh, I'm reading the wrong text here. Okay. Uh, All Jews are mutually responsible. This can be compared to a ship where a hole has been ruptured in one of its cabins. We do not exclaim a cabin has ruptured. Rather, we say the entire ship is ruptured. So if you look at it, we are all together on the same ship. We are not in our own little tugboats trying to connect to God or not. We're in in a, a boat together. And while the secular perspective views us each as individuals with our own journey and our own rights, correct, right? We've been speaking about that. Secular law is obsessed with our rights. And sometimes my rights and your rights can intertwine with each other. And that's why there's certain laws. Great example of this are laws for seatbelts. One of the, uh, you know, if you think about it, how can the government legislate that you should wear a seatbelt? And the answer that they propose is, you know, it's my right. I can I can do it how I want. You know, for example, uh, you can you can go biking without a helmet, right? You can go uh go you can drive a motorcycle without a helmet in, in Florida, I believe, which is kind of reckless. But so how do they legislate seatbelts? And the answer is, uh, they say, well, if people don't wear seatbelts, the, the cost to the government. In the hospitals becomes very, very high because people will get more injured. And therefore, we want to legislate that everybody should wear a seatbelt. Um, and so things like that. So, again, that's all a question of where your rights infringe upon my rights. If you're gonna be reckless, or you're gonna to drink too much drugs or too much alcohol or whatever, if you're gonna be reckless, that will infringe upon my money, and that's how the government gets around making certain laws despite your rights, but it's not out of a duty and a responsibility to each other it's born out of when your rights infringe upon my rights. But in Judaism, um, we view it as we have a universal purpose to our existence. And I'll say it again, Judaism views that we, every single human being, there is a universal purpose to our existence. This is true of humanity in general. Again, as believing Jews, we believe every single person, not just Jewish people created in this world, and have a purpose and particularly Jewish people, have our own special mission. The purpose that we are trying to achieve is to transform the world that we live in into a place that reflects its godly nature. And we do that. Gentiles do it through their seven Noahide laws and Jewish people do it through the 613 commandments. And being that this purpose is shared and it's universal, every action of every individual affects our progress towards it. So if you can imagine you were on a boat that was going from uh, America to England. And uh, only if everybody in the boat is doing what's necessary, will the boat reach England. Then you would feel not only responsible for whatever actions you do on that boat, but for everybody else. And so that is how Judaism is viewed. This is the philosophy. Why am I responsible for somebody else's actions? It's not just because I accept it upon myself. In other words, when you take out a loan, I agreed to do it. It's more than just an agreement. We together have a universal purpose. We're on the same team. We're, you know, imagine you're you're on the same sports team. You're you you're fighting for the same goal. You you're going to try and help the other person be the best player that they can be. So we all here on this earth, we have a universal mission. And as Maimonides puts it, I'm not going to read the text, but that's text 14. He says he gives the famous example. He says. um, we all have to look at this world as if it is a, in a balance of good and bad deeds. And the next person to do a good deed will tip the scales and save the entire earth. And so we believe in the value of every individual's actions, and it's universal ramifications. So again, we believe in the value of every individual's actions, and it's universal ramifications. And so it's no wonder that We as Jews feel responsible for one for one another, and the parable of the ship is very apropos we're in the same ship. It's not a personal matter what somebody else does, it is well sorry it's not personal to them it's personal to all of us. But we don't always feel that way i'm in my home and I do what I do and you're in your home and you do what you do. but Judaism says, no, we're, we're in this together. And so although I do have my own unique individual mission, I also wanna make sure that the entire mission is complete. Again, a great example of sports. You are a certain player, you're, you're, you're playing a certain role. You are individually responsible for your role, but at the same time, you wanna make sure that the entire team um, uh, does it correctly. We're gonna take this one step further. Again, like I said, understanding the structure of our classes. We started off, with general discussion about case studies. Now we're delving deep into the values. So the first layer of value that we said is we are each responsible for each other on this earth because we have a universal mission. And therefore we are not in separate boats. We're all in the same boat. And therefore I feel responsible for you. You feel responsible for me. Now we're gonna take it even deeper because the previous one is almost saying, and the example of a football team is a good example, is we are separate individuals. You play your role, I play my role. But I my universal goal, you know, we can't win the Super Bowl, we can't win the Stanley Cup or whatever it is, unless everybody puts in their maximum effort. But ultimately, I am me and you are you, and we each have our own separate thing. But Judaism takes it a step further, and the Judaism says, actually, even deeper, the reason why I'm responsible for you is because I am actually a part of you and you are a part of me. Why? Because at the soul level, at the soul level, we are united. We are one. It's not just I'm responsible for you because we're trying to accomplish a united goal. But you and me are inherently one. Let's take a look at text number five. Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, famous Kabbalist. He says like this. Let's take a look. Um, uh, Let's go to text number five. All Jews are interrelated because our souls are commingled and we each share a part of each other's soul. This is why all Jews bear mutual responsibility. We each possess an actual spiritual part of our fellow. As a result, when one Jew transgresses, their action causes damage to themselves and inflicts damage to the part of them that is shared by their fellow Jews. Therefore, we should all seek out each other's benefits, rejoice in each other's success, and respect our fellow Jew as we respect ourselves because we really are one. This is the basis for the commandment to love your fellow as yourself. So the real reason we love each other is because in fact, we are one. And this perspective, again, adds further depth to our discussion above. The actions that I do don't just affect our shared mission, but they actually affect us as individuals as well. Again this understanding says your actions don't only affect our shared mission together. They affect me as an individual as well, at least on the soul level. In fact, this is why the Arizal, anybody heard of the Arizal? The Arizal was a famous Kabbalist. And he said, this is the reason why you'll find righteous people who never, who never sinned in their life or barely sinned. They'll stand there in Yom Kippur and bang their hearts for all these terrible sins. But they never got even close to it. definitely not stealing or gossip or some of the sexual sins. I mean, why is the tzaddik banging his chest? It's a lie. For the sin I committed of a falsehood, for the sin I committed of stealing, for the sin I committed with my eyes, the tzaddik never did any of these. How can he stand in front of God and confess for a sin he never did? And so the I'll answered because of this concept that my guarantorship for you is not just because we're in the same mission, but because. We are one at the soul level and so in a sense, when you do what you do, it affects me at the soul level. In a sense, it's as if I have done it. We don't just have a common interest, we have a common identity. And so the tzaddik too, can say the alchetz for things that we have done. So this is all the value system. Now let's see how Judaism brings it out into practice. So I'm going to recap. We started off with our case studies, trying to get your heads to spin a little bit about where does our responsibility go to others, whether it is to save someone, whether it is to save them bodily, whether it's to save them monetarily, whether it's to save them spiritually. Now we presented the Jew- the Jewish idea of responsibility. We presented it from a very Jewish law perspective. And Again, I, I said that because we are addressing Jewish law. Let's take a look at how this value is expressed in Jewish civil law. So we're going to t- bring a quote from Leviticus. This is the one many people have quoted before from text 6a. And it says like this, Lo Do not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. And so what that means is if you see someone who's being killed, you have a duty to do something. Now Maimonides qualifies this. He explains, what does this mean? This prohibition forbids us to refrain from intervening to save others when we see they are in danger of death or financial loss, and we have the ability to rescue them. For example, if someone is drowning in a sea and we are able to swim out and save him, or if robbers are planning to kill someone and we are able to dissuade the plotters or protect the victims from harm, regarding all such cases, we are commanded: Do not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. So, he, Maimonides is saying, clearly, going back to the case of Mr. Roof. Um, if robbers are planning to kill someone, we're able this way the plotters or protect the victim from harm. That's an interesting line. Maimonides says. You don't have to go to the police. If you can stop it by dissuading the plotters, do that too. This goes back to our discussion earlier, which I said, not necessarily is there legislation. You have to go to the, uh, to the uh, government inspectors for you know, food safety. You, know, you can first speak to the owners possibly, but there's definitely uh, an obligation to not stand by when something bad is going to happen. Now, I want to point out, in secular law, this law, the duty to rescue, um, some European countries, including France and Germany, have these laws, but in most law countries like England, Canada, Australia, nearly all the U.S. states, there is no such law. Um, There is a good Samaritan laws, which basically says if you try and save someone, you you won't be prosecuted. But um, we have a duty to do something. The state of Israel actually has a law that is called uh, do not stand by your brother's blood based on this Torah value. And uh, the Israeli law has some unique elements which make it more strict than any other country. Um, So it's an interesting thing. Not all countries have the duty to rescue. But I wanna say the duty to rescue law is only once something has happened. So in the case of the child that was run over, do you have a duty to go save that child? But no country has laws, or almost no countries have laws, where if you know about a crime that might be committed in the future, that that you have to report it. So long as you are not actively helping the planned murder, you are under no legal obligation to say anything um but in judaism you would be and I, I, and as we mentioned earlier i think everybody mentioned the reasons why secular law might want to avoid these types of laws one reason could be again because uh, you know we're worried about the whole snitching process or how do you prove it or it becomes a slippery slope or you know how do you really prove what's going on or people change their mind but nevertheless in jewish law um you would have to do something because how can you stand by when, when you believe that something terrible is going to happen? In it? it may not happen, but you have to make sure to prevent it. Okay? Any questions or comments? I
2: have an example. Okay. Years ago, I was walking on a Sunday in a cold climate. The pond was sort of frozen over, but I could see the ice was a little bit of water here and there. I saw some kids playing on the ice. Uh I immediately called the police. And they said, what's the emergency? I said, we don't have one yet. But if this ice breaks, we could have a tragedy. So Mm -hmm. they sent a police car out right away and um, got the kids off the pond. Um, it, It is the duty. It is our duty. We cannot say, I don't want to get involved. I don't want somebody taking my name down. I don't want the police involving me. If those kids took one wrong step and fell into water and drowned, it, it really is partly my responsibility. And this is what I think you have been talking about. It may not be the law, but it must, we must do that. Very good, yes. The Kitty, so, the Kitty Genovese story in New York is a tragic example of not calling the police when it should be. Right, very good. So
0: it would not be American law, It wouldn't be even European law. It would be Jewish law, and to an extent, possibly Israeli law, which is a discussion for another time. But yes, definitely morally imperative. And therefore, us, as as believing Jews, uh, we would definitely want to do that. Now, this is all in regards to danger of life, bodily danger. By the way, if you, okay, I I just want to say in Jewish law, if you don't do anything, can you be punished? So the answer is the Torah does not give any, in other words, the Torah says, you should do something. Lo tamad do not stand in somebody's blood. What happens if you don't? The Torah doesn't mention any specific punishment. The courts were given the authorities to impose any punishments, but there was no official, so to speak, sentencing guidelines. However, in Jewish law, you would also definitely be judged by God because you, you, you did not do the positive commandment of saving someone else's life when you had the ability. Um, so going back to the story of the person who knew about the, the massacre before it happened, the mass shooting, in Jewish law, he would be obligated to uh, report it. If he didn't, the Jewish courts maybe would have given him some type of punishment, um, but there would be no official sentencing guidelines and he would definitely be punished by God. Okay, how would this apply to money? So here's another verse. This is from Deuteronomy. And the verse in Deuteronomy gives a clear example of trying to save someone else's uh, money. It says, Do not witness your fellow's ox. Oh, okay, sorry, I shouldn't translate them all. Um, you should not witness your fellow's ox or sheep straying and ignore them. Rather, you must return them to your fellow. So must you do with anything lost by your fellow. Okay, so this is a general idea we all understand. You find a lost object you should bring it back. But the Talmud expands on this. And this is where we're going to go with this. The Talmud adds and says, the Torah says extra words. It says, so must you do with anything lost by your fellow. And they understand, the Talmud understands that that is expanding the scope of the law. And this is in text number eight. So let's take a look. Rava said, the verse states, so must you do with anything belonging to your fellow the mention of anything comes to include preventing damage to someone else's property. So again, what what Rava is saying is when we say, you must save someone else's lost object, in an expansive view of things, someone's property being damaged is so to speak, a lost object. In other words, they're not around. They don't know about it. There's gonna be, let's say a flood in their house. So by you reporting that flood, you are, so to speak, saving their lost object, which would be their house. Rabbi Hananya said to Rava, there is an earlier teaching that supports your ruling. If you observe flood water advancing towards your fellow's field, you must erect a barrier to protect the field. Um, so if you see a flood coming and you have the time to erect a wall, you should. But the general idea that we're gathering from here is not only do you have an obligation to save somebody's lost objects, but you have an obligation monetarily to prevent any type of loss that might come to somebody's property. So putting that in perspective, uh, in the case of the light that was left on in somebody's car, I think we would all agree Jewish law would say that you would have to report it. How about the case of seeing your neighbor's house has a flood in it Jewish law would say you would have to report it. In in secular law, there's no such law that you have to report such a thing. Uh, You might not have a happy neighbor anymore, but uh, there is no law that you have to report that. Now, what if you trying to save your neighbor monetarily will cost you money, okay? So again, if you trying to save someone from physical harm will cost you money. The, the Torah laws, is you, you should do anything to save somebody's life, right? So let's say example, you are driving down the road and you are driving your new fancy car. And by you crashing your car, you have the ability to save people's lives. I'm not sure how, let's say you're gonna crash and you're gonna uh, crash an animal out of the way of other people. I don't know, just throwing out an example. You would be obligated by Torah to lose money to save other people's lives, In fact, Israel has that law, and Israel actually has a law where they reimburse people who rescue. It's actually a law over there. The Israeli government will reimburse you for uh, rescuing. So um, in in, in, in money, how far do we have to go to rescue people? Yes, Sam.
2: Does the duty to rescue, um, even if it costs you monetarily, can we extend that to, for instance, like buying um, nets for like people in Africa, right? Like, so there's the the charity that you can buy net for relatively very, very cheap. And it like will pra- like, practically speaking, save lives in Africa. Very so good can, we right. ex- can we extend that to this?
0: It's a good question. There was a discussion on the rabbi's chat discussion was like this, nowadays that we know of so many tragedies and every day there's another crowdfunding campaign to save somebody's life, am I now obligated to empty my bank account every single day to save somebody's life? And the answer was a very fascinating answer. Yes, I know about it, but so does everybody else. So therefore, from a Jewish legal perspective, I would only have to contribute my portion which amongst everybody, you know what I mean? Uh, so from a legal perspective, you would not have to legally bear the full responsibility when there are so many other people that can also do it. So to answer your question, are you legally responsible to, to, to purchase those nets? Well, technically, like in words, when you legally have to empty your bank account? No, because so many other people know about it. Does um, supporting such a project is that part of the mitzvah, the answer would be yes. But you would not be obligated because others are also. The the converse case, and that's why I brought the case of the car, is where only you can save. Then you are obligated to spend any amount of money. Now, there is one opinion that says you only have to spend one-fifth of your fortune saving somebody's life. Many other opinions says money is not an object when it comes to lives and whatever it would take. If you're the only person around who can save lives and it will cost your entire fortune, you should do that. But a very good question. Okay, we have uh, two other questions. Don? The principle of losing money to follow the mitzvot comes
2: with almost every Shabbat. Because if you own a business or you provide a service, and you do not do that on Shabbat, you lose money.
0: So the principle is there before us every single week. Right, except... We believe that we'll never lose money by keeping Shabbat. But yes, technically, um, well, well, but that's a spiritual belief, of course. Um, And and I guess the same would go for any mitzvah. I mean, buying kosher food is also more expensive. Uh, But yeah, Shabbat's a great example where, uh, you know, we do things even at monetary expense. Um, Okay, Esmeralda? Esmeralda?
1: Yes. Um, What happens, like, if you try to help someone, but instead... You make sins worse for that person. Are you are you liable for that?
0: Right. So uh, basically, let's say somebody says, "I'm I'm suffering. I need some money. I need food to eat," and you give them money and they buy drugs with it. Is that kind of what you're talking about?
1: Well, more like let's just say somebody uh, is into an accident, right? And then you try to rescue them, like you know, get them out of the car or something, something like that. Instead. You you don't know what you're doing because you're not a doctor or anything like that, but you're trying to do the best you can. Um,
0: right, very good. See, 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 you really have to know yourself, and sometimes the best you can is to is to call call for help. You know. Right,
1: but there are cases that you know so, somebody needs help like that right away.
0: Well, and that and that. Well, then you have to evaluate if I. In other words, if I don't, if let's say you're in a forest, there's nobody else around. Well, then the worst you could do is God forbid kill them, but they would die anyway. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, you know, you have to evaluate every case and, and you definitely don't want to cause more harm, but you definitely have to do something is really the story. Whether you believe that something is calling the authorities or you believe that something is, is, um, uh, doing something, you know, you have to think about that. Okay, so let's take a look. What about in monetary cases? So again, when it comes to life, we understand that we should spend a lot of money to save a life. What about monetarily? If if I'm going to save somebody else money, do I have to spend money? So let's take a look. If you find your own lost object alongside your father's lost object, retrieving your personal asset takes precedence. If you encounter your own lost object alongside your teachers, your personal assets take precedence, your assets take precedence over those of anyone else. So extrapolate from that, just as uh, so, in this case, if by um, saving somebody else money, it's going to cost you money, well, your money takes precedence over someone else's money. Then he continues, from where this law derived, Rabbi Yehuda quoted Rav, the verse states, so that there shall be no impoverished among you. You must avoid becoming impoverished, so your assets take precedence over anyone else. So, so far what they're saying is, is if it costs you money, you're not under any legal obligation. But as we know, the Talmud not only goes with the technical law, but also the spirit of the law, and so the Talmud continues. However, Rabbi Yehuda quoted a warning issued by Rav, people who are strict in their application of this principle will eventually meet the impoverished state they're seeking to avoid. In other words, if you're not willing to spend a dime to save someone else $100, eventually you will, so to speak, be punished in the same manner that you will lose $100 while someone else could have saved you for the cost of a dime. So they're saying, technically, anytime it costs you money, can you wiggle out of the legal obligation because your money comes precedence before someone else's money? The answer is yes. You can get out of the legal obligation. However, remember the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is that anytime where you can save someone else's not just body, but money, you should. And so we're not expecting you to spend $100 to save somebody else $100. But you should not be so picky on your own losses. So today, time is money, let's say, you know? So how do I evaluate my time? If it takes me all this time to find the owner of the jewelry store, eh, why should I spend the time to find the owner of the jewelry store that by mistake left his door unlocked? But think about it. Your loss of your time of tracking down the owner of the jewelry store is maybe a half an hour. And the jewelry store owner just stand to lose lots and lots of money. You know, is it, is it, can you legally get out of it? If, if you can somehow find a way to prove that your time is worth money? Yes. Um, but it wouldn't be within the spirit of the law. The time is money is a complicated subject too. Um, and then one can delve deeper and deeper into that. But regardless, the general idea is that we are not obligated to spend money to save somebody else money. However, it would be... Than being Jewish, over law. Than Jewish law would say there is some type of moral imperative to do that. Um, and the Talmud brings uh, an example, sorry, this is the code of Jewish law. The code of Jewish law brings a different example, which wants to point out that even if you are just saving an item that is not worth a lot of money, um, nevertheless, you should spend the time to try and return it. So it says, if you encounter lost items of insignificant value to the point that if they were your own, We would not bother to collect them and take them home, we are nevertheless obligated to make the necessary effort to restore them to their owner. The rationale is that we have the right to relinquish our possessions if their value is outweighed by the physical burden they impose. However, we have no right to unilaterally relinquish someone else's ownership over their possessions, the Torah does not allow us to spare any effort, even if it is great and the value of the item is minimal. So you found a very cheap product and it is clear to you who owns it. Okay, there's many laws, you know, you could find some objects and it's not clear to you and you don't have to announce it. Let's say you found an item and you know whose it is and uh, it's really, really cheap, but nevertheless, you would be obligated to uh, return it. And so assuming your time is not worth money in many, many cases where you notice a loss to someone else, even if it may be very insignificant, you should legally, Jewish law, go to lengths to help that person. So let's say, for example, let's say you don't care, right? You could say, I don't care if a light is left on in my car. I've got jumper cables and I'll just jump my car. Big deal, right? But you see someone else's car, I would say you should chase them down. One can make the argument that that's not an actual monetary loss because they didn't lose any money. Um, But uh, we could find another example. Let's say something is costing somebody electricity and they don't know about it. Um, You should spend the time to let them know about it even if to you it would be insignificant, um, to someone else it may be significant. What happens if uh, you don't, what happens if you don't uh, spend the time to save somebody else money? So the Talmud says over here, gives an example. Those who could rightly, testify for someone but fail to do so are not legally liable to provide compensation for the damage they could have prevented. However, such people will not be granted divine forgiveness until they pay for the damage. So that's pretty harsh. What it's saying is, is that there's no technical punishment, but practically you will not be um, forgiven. So what does that mean? Practically, if you know testimony and you don't give it and your testimony would have saved the other person money, Although it's a mitzvah to give that testimony, if you don't give that testimony, uh, we cannot punish you. But God is saying, I will not forgive you until you um, take care of that. So I think so far we have explained case number A. Maybe I should recap the whole class. We, we brought in the beginning of the class, three case studies. Case study number A was about where someone could have prevented a murder. They knew about it in advance. Case number B was where you could have the ability to save somebody money that they don't know they're losing. And case number C was, do we have an obligation to help our fellow Jews do the commandments? We went into the general idea of Jewish, the Jewish value system of responsibility. And we discussed that our responsibility towards another is A, we accept the responsibility for each other and B, at a soul level, we are all one. We looked at the Torah Jewish law, how there is a duty to, rescue, and there's not only a duty to rescue, which many countries have, but there's even a duty to report and prevent, and prevent not just um, bodily harm, but even to prevent monetary loss. We discussed punishment. There isn't really that much technical punishment the courts can impose officially, but if they want to impose punishment, they can, and definitely from heaven, you will not be forgiven. Now we're going to go to the third case study, which was, do, are we responsible for uh, other people and uh, for their Jewish, I should say, for their religious behavior? Before we do that, I want to take questions on these last two sections. If anybody hasn't, I see to write here, <coughs> how does Jewish law appoint or maybe apply to risking your own life to save another life? The answer is you don't have to risk your life to save another life. Now you can question, what does risk mean? And that's a discussion that we've had in in other classes, the stopping at the side of highway. There's all different ways of looking at it, but the answer is you do not have to risk your life to save someone else's life. That would be the answer. Okay, any questions or comments on the past case studies and the lessons that we learned or the value system before we go to the final section of the class? Nope, nothing, okay. So in the final section of the class, we are now going to discuss our responsibility towards another in the religious sphere. So uh, Penny quoted earlier a verse from the Torah, which is very often misconstrued. And uh, let's take a look at this text because one can use it as a weapon Let's read this. You shall surely critique your fellow and you will not share in their guilt. I, I just want to know many people translate the Hebrew word over here, as rebuke. You shall surely rebuke your fellow and you will not share in their guilt. However, the Rebbe says the correct translation is not rebuke, but critique. Because rebuke has a connotation of rejection, which is contrary to the principle of Ahavati Yisrael. Ahavat And uh, therefore, the correct word would be critique. Anyways, that was a letter between the Rebbe and Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. So many people take that verse, you shall surely critique your fellow and you will not share in their guilt. So anybody they see doing anything wrong, they will critique them. And you can imagine these are very pleasant people to hang around. In fact, some of these religious Jews give us a very bad rap. Uh, if you go to certain communities, they will throw rocks at you. If you're doing certain things in Shabbos, if you are not dressed modestly, they will uh, let you know in uh, very, uh, shall we say, strong terms, maybe also rocks. And uh, that's obviously taking us to an extreme. So what is the correct way of doing this? But before we get to what's the correct way of doing it, let's take a look at the reason behind this. value system behind this and of course we already saw that we are guarantors to each other so we understand that i i really should try and help you do your commandments but let's read what maimonides says here maimonides says like this one should not say i will act righteously and if others choose to stray from the paths of righteousness that is a manner between them and god this attitude is antithetical to torah values rather we are commanded to do the right things ourselves and to see it that others too conduct themselves appropriately okay So that is what Maimonides says. Minding your own business, as they say, uh, doesn't really apply in Judaism. There's almost no such thing in Judaism as minding your own business, as odd as that sounds. Um, Now, what we do learn from here is you're not responsible for others if you've tried your best, but minding your own business, which is a very, uh, you know, American thing or law thing, mind it, you know, to do what you want to do is contrary to Jewish values of social responsibility. We cannot mind our own business. We cannot mind our own business when lives are at stake. We cannot mind our own business when other people's money is at stake. And also we cannot mind our own business in our shared mission in this world. And so if our fellow transgresses, we are held accountable for it. But if we try and prevent them, then as the verse continues, you will not share in their guilt. And that is why, as I said earlier, so if someone uh, wants to do a transgression on the Shabbat, definitely not, um, they shouldn't do it because of me. Now, can I go over to people who don't keep Shabbat or people who are not keeping kosher? Or you know, am I now going to uh, walk into every restaurant in town and, and find all the Jews? And so how, how do you actually practically do this? So let's take a look. Torah is very practical. When we critique others, whether regarding an interpersonal issue or a religious matter, it should be done in private. We must speak patiently and gently, clarifying that we are motivated solely by their welfare and our desire that they merit reward in the world to come. Notice how the first thing he says is is done in private. So often critique is done in public. Because so often it's not about the other person, it's about me. I wanna show that I'm right. I wanna show that I know better. I wanna show that I have the real path and you are all mistaken sinners, right? And so what he, what he cautioned here is speak patiently, privately, gently, why? Because the other person has to know it's not about you, it's about them. You're not motivated by your welfare. I, I wanna go, go drive people crazy because I wanna get heaven. No, it's I care about you. The same way I would try and save you from bodily harm. The same way I would try and save you monetarily. The same way I will try and get you mats on Passover. The same way I'll try and gently talk to you and, and try to talk to you about not eating bread on Passover. But many times we're, we're motivated by our own ego. We can get animated and we can scream at people and get angry at people. and. When you cannot, first of all, that's wrong. Second of all, um, first of all, second of all, it's not effective. Criticism <clears throat> that is motivated by feelings of yourself are ineffective and self-defeating. Constructive criticism always has to come from a place of genuine care. When your heart is in the right place, in fact, people are more likely to listen. There's a, there's a famous line in Hebrew, words that come from the heart will enter the heart. And I'll say that again, words that come from the heart will enter the heart. There's uh, a great story by uh, uh, Rabbi Jesse Jacobson tells a story talking about having an effect on others. There was once a, uh, a teacher, who was a teacher for many, many years and he was once at a, at a wedding as he's at this wedding, somebody runs over to him and says, uh, Rebbe, do you remember me? I'm, 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 I'm Chaim Yankle, do you remember me? So the Rebbe looks at him and says, Chaim Yankel, I vaguely remember. Maybe you are in my third grade class 25 years ago. I, I don't really remember. He says, Rabbi, you really don't remember me? He says, no. He says, you know, and then he turns to the Rebbe. and says, Rebbe, but you were my inspiration to become a teacher. He says, how so? Chaim Yankel says, listen, one time when we were in class, one of my fellow classmates came to school with a beautiful watch. And I came from a poor family and I really wanted that watch. I wasn't a Ghanav type of person. I wasn't a real robber, but I really, really wanted that. It wasn't an expensive watch. It was a nice watch, you know, for kids, you know, kids ideas, a $15 watch is nice. He says so during class. I managed to uh, pickpocket or, you know, slip that watch and put it in my pocket. And I was all excited I'm going to bring it home. But unfortunately, the kid that I stole from realized that his watch was stolen, and he realized it had only been during class. And he alerted the teacher. He alerted you, and you said this is a, you know, a real problem. So you made everybody line up in the classroom, and you said you're going to check everybody's pockets one by one. You're going to find a watch. And as you can imagine, I was shivering in my pants. I have the watch in my pocket. I'm gonna be caught in front of the whole class. But then you said, you want all of the kids to close their eyes so that nobody should know who stole the watch. And you went from pocket to pocket. And when you came to my pocket, I could tell you found the watch, you took it, but then you continued on to check everybody else's pockets nobody, everybody was checked and nobody knew that I had stolen the watch. But he said, even more than that, you never once mentioned to me that I stole that watch. Never once. You knew and I knew. And that taught me that's what a real teacher is. You knew somebody committed something wrong, but you would never mention it. Just the sheer guilt. You knew I wasn't a bad guy, The sheer guilt alone would be enough. And then the rabbi turns to Chaim Yanko and says, Chaim Yankel, I have to tell you the truth that I never knew who stole the watch because not only did I have all the students close their eyes, I also closed my eyes. What's the lesson of the story? The idea of the story is the teacher wasn't out there to get somebody to prove there's a kid who's a robber and let's embarrass. It wasn't, he knew he did not want to embarrass any child. And more than that, he did not want to think about any of the children differently because he understood that the children are children and sometimes they do things. Um, no, how, how many of us were kids? Did we steal a dollar from our parents, maybe or something? You know, we've all we were kids. We probably stole something little, probably. I'm here admitting my guilt. I, I'm sure I don't remember exactly. I'm sure I I know I, I forged the uh, signatures for homework. So you know, um <laughs> you know, when we were kids, you know, does that mean we'd all grow up terrible people? Because I forged the signatures as is, you know, and that's it I got I got I got suspension in school. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But anyways, uh detention. Um but that's what it's about is when we want to tell off someone, it cannot be coming from a place of addictiveness and I'm going to catch you and I'm going to show you and I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to throw rocks at you under your car. And a, then it's coming from bad place. It's not what God wants. And B is, uh, you're not going to help anybody. You're not going to help anything. The, and, and really when you focus on the mission, why are you telling them off? Because you feel the responsibility. Because at the soul level, you are the same there's a way to do it and there's a way to do it and only if you do it that way then you're actually fulfilling the reason why you're telling off the person okay and um, the final point here is just as we are obligated to prevent people from doing negative commandments prevent them from eating not kosher or eating, uh, you know chametz on Passover the same way in the other way we are actually obligated to help people do mitzvahs. So whether it is uh, going out and giving out matzah or whether it's, uh, or whether it's uh, trying to get people to come to shul to hear the Torah, reading the 10 commandments, all these different mitzvahs that we try and get people to do that. And now you can understand where the Chabad philosophy comes from, that we all understand that at the soul level, we're the same and we are all responsible for each other. And that is why, um, that is why, we all have to go around and try and help each other. But there's an interesting Jewish law that comes out of this topic. We all know that we're not allowed to say God's name in vain. So you can say a blessing if you're about to eat a cookie, but if you're not about to eat a piece of food, you cannot make a blessing on food, it's a waste. Similarly, when we do a mitzvah, we make a blessing before we do that mitzvah, right? But if you're not about to do that mitzvah or you're not obligated in the mitzvah, you cannot make a blessing. So for example, on Shabbat, when you're not allowed to put, when you're not supposed to put on tefillin, you cannot make a blessing on the tefillin, because that is would be wrong. What if you're eating on Yom Kippur? Do you make a blessing on the food? Okay, we'll discussion for another time. Um, but it, you know, if you're not obligated, so here's a fascinating law. Let's say I, let's say it's Rosh Hashanah. I already made a blessing on the shofar and I already blew the shofar, and now I am going to blow the shofar for a group of other people. Can I say the blessing for them? And the answer is yes. And I'm not going to get into the legal ramifications of some people who can't. Who can't. But the general idea is this. Since I am responsible for your mitzvahs, therefore, even though I have already blown the shofar and I already made a blessing on the shofar, I can make a blessing on the shofar for you. Because in a sense, when you're obligated, I am obligated. And so here's an example in Jewish law you see in Jewish law, where, my obli- where where your obligation becomes my obligation. Because you need to do the mitzvah, I can say that blessing for you. And because you need to do the mitzvah, I can actually do the mitzvah for you in some cases. I can blow the shofar for you. I can, I can read the Megillah for you. I can make kiddush for you. In all these cases, this is a practical law example of where our mutual responsibility comes out in law, that uh, we have to, that I can make a blessing for you. Um, It's late and I really wanted to show a video at the end and uh, it is late, so it's gonna be a bonus. So I'm just gonna end with the key points of today's class. Then we're gonna have the bonus and then I won't be offended if you leave. Um, And so the the, the key points of today's class were, Judaism has a very broad definition of mutual responsibility based on a vision of shared purpose and mission. In addition to the shared mission, Jewish mysticism teaches that our souls are united. And so therefore, I am not only responsible for you because of our mission, but I'm responsible for you because you and me, you are, I and I are you. That's probably not the correct grammatical way of saying it. Jewish law considers it a crime to remain silent when you are aware aware of a threat to someone else's life. Jewish value also calls upon us to uh, protect somebody else from monetary loss. Jewish value calls us responsible to guide others away from transgression. And Jewish law also guides us that we are responsible for other people's commandments to the point that we can even make a blessing. Because as long as they haven't done their obligation, I haven't fully fulfilled my obligation either and uh this has been uh hopefully a fascinating powerful class classroom responsibility and uh again i'm going to show a video in a moment but i do want to take any questions people have before i uh sign off onto this video so if anybody has any questions or comments please let it be known now and again this video is bonus but just a six minute talk of the rebbe um really powerfully bringing out This level of responsibility, any questions or comments.